You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, as usual, before we dive back in, listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behaviour at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. So there was a lot of new information to digest and process in the last episode. I really wanted to highlight the main facts of the case, including the evidence that the police had and the key investigative lines of inquiry up until Marilyn Moore's attack in December 1977. It's good to take stock with such an extensive case. I also said at the end of the episode that things were about to get a lot worse. Another victim lay undiscovered on wasteland in Bradford. A woman who died here ten days before Helen Ritker. Her name was Yvonne Pearson. She had gone missing from her home in Bradford in January 1978. Her decomposed body turned up under a settee two months later on Easter Sunday. Mrs. Pearson's death was the most violent of the series up to that point. The skull was stove in. Whatever had been used, it was not a hammer. There were no stab wounds of the chest, but on the other hand, there were bruising injuries to both the chest and trunk, which extended internally. Could have been somebody drop kneeling on the chest, could have been somebody stamping on the chest. But, as I say, these were serious injuries, not just serious head injuries, but the full weight of the assailant had been used in some way from the neck down as well. Noted Benny that we are back in Bradford. 21-year-old Yvonne Pearson was reported missing on the 21st of January 1978. Now, Yvonne was mother to two children, and she had left her two children in the care of a 16-year-old neighbour to go and earn some money. She had recently been charged for soliciting, and she was awaiting a court appearance when she disappeared with only her small handbag. Now, this wasn't her first conviction for prostitution. Her friends had also said she would never have left her children, and that's a really important behavioural point, i.e. she wouldn't have just gone off, she wouldn't have just left them, which is an indication that when Yvonne goes missing, she's a high-risk missing person, and most likely something terrible had happened. Therefore, the case should have been prioritised, in my opinion. Now, I can't tell you whether it was or whether it wasn't, but in my experience, prostitutes going missing didn't tend to garner too much interest, and despite there being a major investigation underway and the police believing prostitutes were being targeted, I can't say with any confidence at this point that police officers were really flagging and prioritising cases like Yvonne's to the Milgarth Incident Room. 
And so Yvonne's body wasn't found until two months later, on Easter Sunday on March 26, 1978. Her arm was sticking out of a sofa, and there was a newspaper under her hand dated January 21, 1978. Now it's believed that the killer had placed it there. Her head was so badly damaged, as you heard from Professor Michael Green, the killer had literally smashed her head in. He may well have kicked her in the head repeatedly. And Yvonne also had horsehair in her mouth. So you may well be thinking that this sounds like a departure from the other attacks, but perhaps something else happened. Perhaps he felt sudden rage for whatever reason. It's unknown. The horsehair was from the sofa at the wasteland. Well, that might have been used to keep her quiet if she was screaming or making noise, for example. A makeshift gag, if you will. It feels more instrumental and functional to me rather than anything ritualistic or more sinister. And there were no stab wounds. And because there were no stab wounds, the police didn't want to link Yvonne's murder to the series. Well, that makes no sense to me. Firstly, how many other stranger attacks on lone females were happening at that time in Bradford with the same level of violence and brutality? Secondly, I've learned from working cases that offenders improvise and they may change their MO, their modus operandi. If the opportunity presents itself and the desirability is strong, they may act on impulse. It's need-driven behaviour. And so they don't always do exactly the same thing over and over again. Because circumstances change, victims' reactions are different, and so you can't always expect to see exactly the same behaviours repeat. What we know about this man was that he targeted women, engaging them in conversation first off, lulling them into a false sense of safety, and then attacking them from behind, hitting them over the head to incapacitate them. He showed a callous disregard towards women. He was brutal and used excessive violence. That's what they should have understood about his salient offending behaviour and that he was local. Now, I also want to point out here that he was also a coward, a coward who hated women and who attacked women when they least expected it. And then they didn't stand a fighting chance. And that's exactly what happened here. And ergo, this attack should have been linked. Yes, yes, I know hindsight is twenty twenty. That's what you're thinking. But I'm basing my opinion, and that's what it is, my opinion based on analysing thousands of cases and deconstructing the basic rudimentary behaviour of what he's doing as well as his motivation, the why. You see, in my experience, sometimes the modus operandi changes, the how it's done part, but the ultimate behaviour, the what they enjoy part, the signature, what gratifies them, the power and control element, that will remain the same. And this offence is in Bradford. It's a rare type of offence, as I keep saying. The victimology, the fact that Marilyn Moore's December 1977 attack was interrupted and incomplete means he would have been out stalking the streets for another victim. And that's what we've learned from analysing his past behaviour and every nuanced detail about the crime scene behaviour points to the same offender. During the time Yvonne was reported missing, another woman's body was found. The woman was 18-year-old Helen Richter. 
At around 9.30pm on Tuesday the 31st of January 1978, Helen and her twin sister Rita were in Huddersfield, working near a public toilet block. They were both prostitutes. They'd had a tough upbringing in children's homes and found themselves in prostitution to try and make ends meet. And it's worth noting here that they were beautiful twins and that they also lived together. That night, the sisters went off with two different men. Helen was dropped back first. But when Rita returned to her flat, Helen wasn't there. Rita reported her missing to the police, but she didn't tell them that she was a prostitute. Later on, she disclosed that fact to the police, and the missing person report was then prioritised, and Rita was pictured with ACC Oldfield helping him with his inquiries as they thought it would help draw the public's attention by publishing a public interest piece in the media about their lives and their tough upbringing. And it worked. People were moved by the appeal, and information came flooding in. Now, they didn't have computers to deal with all the new incoming information, just a card index system, which was already buckling. Helen's body was found in Gerard's timber yard close to the public toilets. Police dogs were deployed there. It was a known area that prostitutes went with their clients. Helen's body had been covered with sheets of asbestos and timber, i.e. the killer tried to conceal her. The police thought that he had never really tried to hide a body before. Now that's a big assumption to make when you don't know if you found all the victims, because we know that this man was prolific, and there were probably others. I'll come back to that later. In this case, it was much more likely that he did this because he may have been seen by someone when he picked her up and when he was with her. Helen had six wounds to her head. She had multiple stab wounds to her chest. Her breasts were exposed. Her bloody underwear was also found in the timber yard. P.S. had raped Helen. So this appeared to be new, but again it's unlikely it was the first time, in my opinion. Following Helen's murder, the police also tried a different approach using the media. They appealed to the killer directly, using a psychiatrist who asked the killer to give himself up. Hmm, what to say about this? Well, the very fact that he concealed Helen's body highlights to me that he doesn't want to be caught. He didn't leave her body in plain sight. And in fact, all of his behaviour thus far indicates that he doesn't want to be caught. So in this situation, it really was a waste of an appeal and airtime. And in general, I tend to say that this tactic is a waste of time. And it was after Helen's murder that the media widely dubbed him the Yorkshire R-word, which has had the dire consequences going forward. And now TV shows and other podcasts continue to use this moniker in their titles. And they keep telling me, well, it's what he's known by, Laura. Please stop using the moniker and show some respect to the victims and their families and what they want and what they need. After Helen's murder in June 1978, a number of other cases were linked. In the last episode, episode 3, I told you about 14-year-old Tracy Brown, who was attacked in August 1975 in a country lane in Silsden, close to Keithley. And that 12 days before her, Olive Smelt was attacked in Halifax. 
Well, there was another woman who was attacked in Keithley in the early hours of Sunday, July the 5th, 1975. Her name was Anna Rajolski. Just a reminder that geographically Keithley is 11 miles northwest of Bradford. Now Anna had been out drinking with friends and she'd got a ride back to Keithley. When she got home, she decided to go and see her boyfriend, Geoffrey Hughes. They'd had an argument that night about her wanting to go out on her own with friends. He didn't want her to go. And when she got home, she discovered that he'd moved out. So she decided to go and confront him at his home in North Queen Street. Now, a side note about the relationship. Geoffrey had been violent to Anna in the past. Most people subsequently describe their relationship as stormy, but it was violent. So another ask, please use the right terminology, otherwise the abuse and abusers remain masked and hidden. We have to make abuse and abusers visible. In fact, much later on, Anna learned that he had been discharged from a psychiatric hospital with a recommendation to keep away from women for five years. Again, violence against women and girls not being taken seriously, and it still isn't. Present day, she should have been told about his history of violence. She should have been protected. But that night, she decided to go over to his and walk the short distance to his house. On her way, she was propositioned by a man who asked her if she fancied it, to which she replied, not on your life. She carried on to Geoffrey's place, having brushed this man off, and once she got there, she realised he wasn't in. Anna was frustrated and hammered on the door. She hammered with her shoe and broke his window. Exasperated, she left for home. But as she reached the end of the terrace, as Anna passed an alleyway, the man who had asked her if she fancied it appeared out of the shadows. He attacked her from behind with a ballpen hammer, hitting her three times on the head. Anna fell to the ground. He raised her blouse and slashed her across her abdomen. Just as he was about to stab her again, a man's voice called out and asked what was happening. He obviously heard her scream or some form of commotion. P.S. decamped, leaving Anna, unconscious, lying on the ground, on her back, bleeding. Fortunately, she was found at around 2.20am. A young man was taking a shortcut through the alleyway. He raised the alarm and Anna was rushed to hospital. She underwent a 12-hour operation to remove shards of bone from her brain at the General Infirmary in Leeds. In fact, she was read her last rites, as they didn't expect her to survive, given how extensive her injuries were. Anna was examined by forensic pathologist Dr Michael Green, who found three crescent-shaped lacerations to her skull and fractures caused by a heavy object. He also noted defensive bruising to her arms, so she fought him. And peculiar marks that were on her abdomen, a graze about seven inches long and six or seven deep scratches above it, inflicted by the attacker before he had pulled her blouse back into position. So another interesting point here is that he took his time and he pulled her blouse back down before he left the scene. Dr. Michael Green noted that there was no evidence of sexual interference. Now remember that this was an incomplete attack. 
And behaviourally, it's clear to me that this was a sexually motivated and a power-and-control crime. If he were there to kill her, he would have repeatedly hit her on the head. That's all that would have happened. But he was interrupted, having pulled her top up and he was slashing her stomach when the man's voice called out. Jeffrey's neighbour told detectives that Anna had broken the window between about 1 and 2am and they saw a man about 5 foot 8 inches tall wearing a check jacket around the time of the attack. West Yorkshire Detective Superintendent Peter Perry headed the investigation. Jeffrey and the young man who had found Anna were questioned and later eliminated as potential suspects. Anna believed that she had seen the attacker twice before, and both times he had propositioned her. Once at Town Hall Square, he had asked her to have tea with him and then started following her, and another time in Wilde's coffee bar where she worked. He'd asked to buy her a drink. She noticed he had racing eyes and dainty hands, and she was about to kick up a fuss because she didn't want the attention from him, and he disappeared. Anna was also convinced that her attacker was a local man. So if Anna was right, this again indicates stalking. He knew her and had watched her before. And the fact that Anna, Olive and Tracy were all attacked in close proximity and time to each other, they were all hit over the back of the head by a man who engaged them in conversation late at night, a man who almost killed them, but in each case he was interrupted. They all said that he was a local man, and so you would have thought that alarm bells would have been ringing, particularly when Wilma was killed in exactly the same way. But no... That's not what happened here. Anna and Olive's attacks were later linked in August 1978, but West Yorkshire Police's senior officer's attention would be diverted away from the linked offences and the known facts of the case, as well as the known facts about the perpetrator. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. As I've said before, the media played a big part in this case, and there were some major missteps, missteps that would totally blindside the police. A letter had arrived at police headquarters for the attention of ACC Oldfield. 
A copy was also sent to the mirror. The letter had a Sunderland postmark. Now, just to situate you, Sunderland is a port city in Tynham Ware. It's situated 12 miles northeast of Durham and 10 miles southeast of Newcastle upon Tyne, and it's about 78 miles or 127 kilometres from Bradford in West Yorkshire. The driving distance is about 109 miles or 175 kilometres. And Sunderland is policed by a different police force, Northumbria Police. So back to the letter. This is what was written. I'm sorry I cannot give my name for obvious reasons. I am the R-word. Worn whores to keep off street. Old slut next time, I hope. So a claim that the author was the killer, referring to the R-word that he was called in the media. And so the author is paying close attention to the media. And the author uses derogatory language towards women, a warning and claim regarding the next victim. Now, of course, the police knew by now that the killer was targeting all women, not just prostitutes. And so this should have been a major red flag from the get-go. Secondly, why would the killer write to the police and the media? It's clear from his behaviour that he didn't want to be caught and was taking certain forensic countermeasures. And so this makes no sense. Why would he take the risk? And the taunting of police rarely happens in reality in these investigations. That really is the stuff of movies and Hollywood. Thirdly, and more importantly, it was what the letter writer omitted from the letter that should have rung greater alarm bells. There was no mention of Yvonne Pearson in this letter, when she was already dead, only the mention of an older victim. Now that really doesn't make sense if the killer really did write the letter. The killer would want them to know that he was authentic. He would brag about that if this really were a taunting police exercise and he would not have missed this opportunity. The psychology dictates that he would want to let them know that he was smarter than them. After all, that would be the whole point of him taking the risk and sending the letter in the first place. And as I mentioned before, it's not always what's present. Oftentimes it's more significant what is missing or omitted. And this was a glaring omission. Now there was at least one senior police officer who understood this, the new head of CID at West Yorkshire Police, Detective Chief Superintendent Trevor Lapish. What disturbed me, and in fact convinced me completely, that if in fact the perpetrator of Yvonne Pearson was the person who had done all the rest, Yvonne should have been in that letter. She wasn't. And I had grave doubts that, in fact, the perpetrator of the crimes was the same person who was sending the letter to George Oldfield and let Mr Oldfield know my thoughts on the matter. Detective Chief Superintendent Trevor Lapish didn't think the letter was from the killer because the author didn't mention Yvonne Pearson's murder. And so he let Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield know his thoughts. But Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield would not hear of it. He was convinced it was from the killer because the letter also included up to number eight now. You say seven, but remember Preston 75. Okay, so here things take another turn. 
The author of the letter was referring to Joan Harrison, who was murdered in Preston, Lancashire, on Sunday the 23rd of November 1975, three weeks after Wilma McCann was murdered. 26-year-old Joan was found dead inside a derelict garage. She was a prostitute. She'd been badly beaten, and the killer had bitten her breast. The bite mark revealed that the killer had a gap between their front teeth. There was an absence of stab wounds, and it was believed that the killer may well have kicked Joan to death. Joan had also been raped, and semen was found, and her handbag was missing. Now, the killer in the series had not stolen anything from any of the women that was known about, and this attack was in 1975. So that doesn't make much sense. This was also a different city, Preston, Lancashire. Again, to situate you, it's about an hour and 12 minutes drive from Bradford. Now, this case hadn't been included in the series up until now. Well, up until this letter was received. And over the next 15 months, the police received four more letters. The author of the letters had licked one of the envelopes and they discovered that the saliva was from a bee secretor, which was shared by only 6% of the population, including the man who raped and murdered Joan Harrison. This forensic evidence convinced Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield that Joan's case was linked and that the writer was the killer. He also based this on the fact that he didn't believe Joan's murder had been made public. More on that later. On Tuesday the 16th of May 1978, Vera Millwood was attacked in Manchester. She was from Spain originally and the mother of seven children. And Vera was 40 years old and so she was an older victim, which is what the letter claimed and in Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield's mind, it was further confirmation that the letter writer was the killer. Vera only had one lung and had had a number of operations in 1976 and 1977. That night, she went out at around 10pm as she wanted to buy some painkillers for the terrible stomachache that she had. Vera was also a prostitute and when she didn't return home, her boyfriend thought that she was most likely seeing a client. At around 11.15pm, a man heard a woman scream in the Manchester hospital grounds. The next day, the gardener found Vera's body in the grounds of the hospital. Vera had been hit over the head with a hammer three times. Her body had been dragged across the gravel to the fence. She was found face down and a coat covered her from her knees to her neck. Her shoes had been placed neatly on her body. A piece of paper was on her head. Her dress had been pulled up. Her stomach had been slashed and her intestines had spilled out. When she was on her back, the killer had inserted the weapon back in the same hole and pushed through in different directions. Her right eyelid had been punctured. This wasn't a frenzied attack. There was care and attention to detail. The killer was methodical. And the fact that her shoes had been placed neatly on her body shows this was a meticulous and controlled attack. Additionally, Vera was rolled over onto her stomach and then covered. Her body was covered with her coat and her face with a piece of paper, most likely due to the fact he had punctured her right eyelid. He didn't leave her out on display. Perhaps he remained there, masturbating afterwards. It's difficult to know. 
I would suspect he did, given his previous behaviour. Tyre tracks were once again found close to the body. Plaster casts were made. They matched with the tyre marks found at the Irene Richardson, Jean Jordan and Marilyn Moore crime scenes. Now that's four crime scenes which have the exact same tyre tracks from the same vehicle. That's significant. The forensics lab were able to say that the tyre tracks belonged to a possible 11 vehicles, one being the Ford Corsair. Chief Superintendent Jack Ridgway was in charge of the investigation into Vera's murder because it was another Manchester case. Now the police started to go back and target men who were using prostitutes in more than one red light district. Finally, they tried to find patterns of repeat cars and the police were shocked to discover how many men were using prostitutes. Yep, well, that's no surprise to me. Wake up. This is all about supply and demand, and yet it's the women who are judged. My goodness, the double standard. And interestingly, police did go and do the door knocks at their home addresses and speak to the men, and they would discreetly separate the husbands from their wives. Mostly the wives didn't know, of course, what their husbands were up to. I'm sure some may have had an inkling, but isn't it interesting how the men are protected? One of those repeat cars was a red Ford Corsair. The registration was PHE355G. Papa Hotel Echo 355 Golf. The owner, PS. Home address, 6 Garden Lane, Heaton, Bradford. Now, given my hypothesis and my mapping exercise in episode 3, I talked about... P.S.'s home address and work address, which was right in the catchment area, right in the hotspot or the apex. In fact, it was in the centre of the apex, and if they'd mapped the offences, they would have known this. And so P.S. was interviewed for a third time in August 1978. His car, a red Ford Corsair, had been seen seven times in the red-light districts of Leeds and Bradford. Well, his explanation to the police officers was that he drove that way to work. And Sonia told them that they rarely went out at night. So that was all recorded and filed in the index system. And it was just accepted. That's just mind-blowing to me. Did they check where PS worked when they interviewed him? Clark should have been top of their minds, given the £5 note inquiry. And they should have checked his worksheets to see his movements... Did the worksheets correspond to the times he was caught in those areas? Did they even ask about his shoe size? Because it was a size 7. Were the car tyres of his red Ford Corsair examined? They had the same tyre tracks at four crime scenes. That's hugely significant. You would hope that they checked his car. Why didn't they know he'd been spoken with twice before by police and had a caution for a violent attack on a prostitute and a conviction for going equipped for theft with a hammer? Why was that information not on the index cards? And what about the fact that his Ford Corsair was clocked seven times? Now that's no joke. And did they check the time the car was seen? If it was late at night, which we can only assume that it was, well that was in direct contradiction of what Sonia told them and what P.S. told them about work. All the attacks were late at night. Did they ask him where he was on Saturday nights, early Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, in particular when most of the women were attacked? 
Did they ask him if he knew the Gaiety pub or if he ever went there or to Roundhay Park? And did they pay attention to what he looked like? Was that even on their radar? Did they check the photo fits against what he looked like? And what was his demeanour like when he was questioned? What was his voice like? Was he softly spoken with a local accent? Because that's what each surviving victim described if they had bothered to check along with the photo fit. So I think you get the idea now, the devil really is in the detail, and the follow-up questions are of vital importance. Those questions that should have been asked using the evidence and what was known up until this point about the killer, rather than just filing it in the index system as a complete action. This is just sloppy police work. I'm sorry, but it's egregious on so many levels. This was another completely wasted opportunity to arrest PS in August 1978. Why even go to the bother of clocking the cars? His was clocked seven times in the high-risk areas, the red light districts, and them not bother to do a rigorous interview is beyond me. It's unconscionable. It's a dereliction of duty, and I don't say that lightly. Now, playing the other side for balance, you might have sympathy for the team because they were buried under the paperwork and the case. And I have no doubt that the investigative team may well have been exhausted by this point, but I just don't buy that. This was a leadership issue. There should have been clarity about the type of person they were looking for by now, based on what was known and the criteria. Everyone should have been briefed and clear about what questions to ask and the follow-ups and what the elimination criteria was. But there's one other takeaway for me about the three police interviews, and that's what a cool, calm and collected individual PS must have been. This demonstrated that he was capable of keeping his cool and appearing normal under pressure, i.e. he didn't stand out in the interviews. Again, this is revealing. He'd now been questioned three times and his behaviour didn't arouse suspicion any of those times. So this flies in the face of his later defence that he clung to and that three psychiatrists would buy into after he was eventually arrested. And I'll come back to this in a later episode. Because of the police's incompetence, he slipped through their fingers yet again. In real terms, P.S. was greenlit to kill again. It was the 5th of April 1979 when 19-year-old Josephine Whitaker's body was found. She was a building society clerk. Everyone said she was kind and thoughtful, and she'd visit her grandparents each weekend in Halifax. She'd been to see them on Wednesday the 4th of April 1979, and she left around 11pm. Her body was found the next day around 6.30am at Savile Park in Halifax. There were drag marks on the ground, revealing her body had been moved. She had fractures to her skull, caused by what was believed to be a hammer. She had been stabbed 25 times. Professor G opined a different weapon had been used, which left triangular wounds. Her clothing had been moved. There was a bite mark on her breast, which suggested the killer had a gap in his front teeth. The biting is instructive. It tells me yet again this was a sexually motivated attack, a crime of power and control. And the crime scene was different. Halifax was a nice area. It wasn't a red light district. But again, if they had linked Olive Smelt's attack, which was in Halifax, a nice residential area that he was returning to, then they would have known that he was going back 
to an area he'd been in before. And this should have further reinforced the fact that the killer wasn't targeting prostitutes in red light districts. He was targeting all women. But this blinding glimpse of the obvious appears to have been overlooked. At this crime scene, the killer had left his size 7 boot prints. This time, the imprint revealed that the right boot was much more worn on the heel than the left. The forensics lab also found some engineering oil in the blood of some of the stab wounds. All vitally important information to include in the grid criteria to trace, interview and eliminate potential suspects. Now, P.S. should have been popping again at this point. Engineering oil for a vehicle and what with P.S. being a long-distance lorry driver whose right heel was likely to be worn from the accelerator pedal. I mean, I wonder, was this information known by all officers? And what about those officers who interviewed P.S. before? Or was it a closely guarded secret for some reason? And if it was, why? One other point to make is that the police report stated, and I quote, that Jacqueline was not a prostitute, nor was her moral character questionable. Yep, there it is again. The misogyny is really outrageous in this case. These judgments have no place in policing or in society. Compare and contrast it to how the men using prostitutes were shielded and protected and that they were spoken with discreetly. They seem to have escaped any form of moral comment, yet they're the ones creating the problem. And the women are forced into prostitution to make ends meet and to provide for their children because, as Richard McCann said, the men have failed to contribute to their children's upbringing. But yet again, they escape any form of judgment and it's all on the women. These double standards are nauseating and I hope that those of you who are following along will challenge them in future. By challenging it, we change it. So back to the investigation. I want you to hear next from Sergeant Megan Winterburn, who was working in the incident room at Millgarth Police Station in Leeds. Things were about to take a very different and sinister turn. At Millgarth Police Station in Leeds, Sergeant Megan Winterburn was working in the incident room. Mr Oldfield came in um, and just shouted, Meg, can you come over here, please? Now, I went across to the door um, and... He said, I want you in my office now, please. Now, for Mr. <laughs> Mr. Oakfield to say please, I knew there was something a little bit amiss, because he was usually quite a gruff man. Uh, and he either didn't use your name at all, or he would just say, you, now, my office. And he'd actually said please, so I knew something significant had happened. I remember following him into, the, into his office, and he had a tape recorder on the desk, and he just said, I want you to listen to this. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. I sat with a manual typewriter in a little room and typed the transcription. It was a most peculiar feeling in that room. It was. Like, you, you were sick to the pit of your stomach. There was this tape that allegedly has come from the Ripper and just the, the thought that it might actually be this man's voice, instead of being elated, it, it made my stomach churn. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. It can't be much good 
can you? I had to play it over and over again to be able to, to write the shorthand and then to transcribe it. But yes, first reaction was, this is a man who knows what's happened. It's the Ripper. They went public with the tape and letters from Sunderland on the 26th of June, 1979. So a couple of points here. The letter writer had signed off as Jack the R-word. And we get a first-hand insight into Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield's character, described as gruff, didn't know people's names, rarely said please. Ugh, I remember that culture very well. And women being treated as a secretary, irrespective of your skill set. Yeah, that was largely the same when I was in the job. Well, certainly for female civilians, women being treated as admin support. And the accent on the tape, the Sunderland accent, the man who made the tape clearly was not local. That much was clear. The man on the tape was very clearly a Geordie. He had a Geordie accent. Well, this is in stark contrast to everything that they knew thus far about the killer. A common sense approach and decision would be to immediately speak with the surviving women, the only people who had seen and heard the killer. Olive Smelt, Tracy Brown, Marcella Claxton, Maureen Long and Marilyn Moore to find out if they recognised this Geordie voice. But no, these male senior officers knew best and they took a decision to go public with the tape on the 26th of June 1979. Now this led to an overwhelming response. People thought they were hearing the killer and the police left them in no doubt that this was the killer. Now imagine how chilling that must have felt for Richard and Sonia McCann and the other family members and the surviving women. Well, here's Richard and Sonia to tell you more. As the tape was played across the nation back in 1979, listening were Richard and Sonia McCann. This is undoubtedly the best lead that detectives have had since the Ripper first killed four years ago. They believed they were hearing the voice of the man who murdered their mother. Police say someone somewhere must know this voice. I'm not quite sure when I strike again. Maybe September, October. I still associate that voice oh, with Peter, Peter Suckley. Because we've never really been shown Peter Suckley's voice, when I heard it just then, I imagine Peter Suckley speaking those words. Wilma McCann was the Ripper's first murder victim. She was killed on October the 30th, 1975. Richard and Sonia were aged six and seven when their mum failed to come back from a night out. She was killed in a playing field just yards from her home. I can't see myself being nicked just yet. We, we um, listened for that voice. Every, every man that spoke, we listened for that voice. I mean, before the voice, we were just looking for men that we thought might, you know, show a sign of being mum's killer. We were, we were listening out for it. You know, you were looking for people with a Geordie accent, listening out and thinking that you're going to come across Mum's killer. You are no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. And there's part of the message where he actually, you know, it refers to when he started four years ago. He's talking about our mother mm. four years ago. He could and really sound like a murderer. He did, well, sound, he did sound like, like a murderer. murderer. It was frightening, the voice. If you think back, that voice was frightening. Because we believed it was the, the murderer. Well, we believed it at the time. I did, at the time. so did everybody else. Well, not everybody. And Sonia was right. 
Not everyone thought it was the killer on the tape, but the person leading the inquiry did, and so all the resources were poured into scouring the wrong part of the country for a killer who didn't exist. Now, from that media appeal, the police received over 50,000 calls and had just over 200 officers following up leads. They didn't have the resources to deal with the information that was flooding in, and what's more, it hadn't been anticipated. Now, what's clear to me is that Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield also took it very personally. Due to the fact the letter was addressed to him, he thought it was some sort of game. He had become myopic, and his tunnel vision would be the Achilles heel of the investigation. Stanley Ellis, a linguistics expert at Leeds University, was called upon by police to analyse the tape and opine on where the accent was from. He opined that the voice belonged to a man who came from Castletown originally. So Northumbria police took the action as Castletown was their jurisdiction. They deployed officers to Castletown, playing the tape to everyone they met, and they played it on loudspeakers in public places. Only 5,000 people lived there, yet no one seemed to recognise the voice or be able to identify him. And up until this point, at least 10 women had been murdered, yet they seemed no closer, and the public were beginning to lose faith. Women started reclaim the night marches, demanding a curfew on men. They chanted, enough male violence. You know, I can't agree more. And I still say this present day, male violence is the problem. Focus on that and keep the main thing the main thing. And talking of main things... The car tracking line of inquiry continued on as a priority line of investigation. In fact, 150 officers spent a year checking cars in the red light districts. Well, that's a long time to be clocking cars, but their dogged legwork paid off. They had a breakthrough. A black sunbeam rapier was clocked twice in Leeds, once in Manchester, and 36 times in Bradford. The registered keeper? Well, that was P.S., his address was listed as 6 Garden Lane, Heaton, Bradford. And so in July 1979, Detective Constable Andrew Lapchew was tasked with interviewing P.S. at his home address in Bradford. Now on that bombshell, that's it for now, lovely listeners. I'll tell you about what happened next when you join me next week in the Intelligence Cell for Part 6 of The Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written and produced by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom from Syndicate. And the music is by Kilrude. 